Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Trevor Abramson, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Hi, Mark. Nice to chat with you again and and looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. Trevor is the founding partner at LA-based Abramson Architects, where he strives to promote the art of architecture by evoking a deeply felt emotional and spiritual response to his work. His multifaceted practice encompasses single-family residences, ecclesiastical commissions, educational facilities, medical facilities, and varied commercial buildings. His over 400 projects have gained significant acclaim from the international architectural community and have gained numerous uh, awards and multiple publications. And today we're going to talk about Trevor's firm, how it works, the type of work they do. And so I'm really looking forward to this. But before we have that conversation about the work that you do, Trevor, I'd love to learn more about you as an architect. When did you discover your passion for architecture? Maybe even who or what inspired you to move in that direction? You know, my late father was an architect. My accent is South African in case you and the audience is wondering. So I grew up in South Africa. I left South Africa when I was 18 years old to come to the United States. But growing up, my father had a very successful architecture practice. He was both an architect and a real estate developer, but the architecture was what what turned me on. As a kid, I would go with him to construction sites 
and they were doing larger commercial kind of projects. My very good friend, Jeremy Pope, who I grew up and known since five years old, also became an architect, also influenced by my dad. And Jeremy lives in Toronto and is a partner in a big firm there. But so Jeremy and I, as we grew up and became young teenagers, we would get on our bicycles and cycle around Johannesburg. Instead of going to the movies with the other kids, we would be going and looking at buildings and riding on the freeway that they were building at the time. And then we would even come back to the house and and build bridges out of cement. And so it was ingrained in us. We loved yeah. it. I loved it. And I've been had this passion to build and make things since a young kid. So that was the impetus. That's such a unique story for an architect to not only have an architect dad, a father who was an architect, but to have a friend who has had the same dream as a young child and that you grew up together, sort of having pursuing this dream together. This is 520 episodes. I've never had anyone answer that question and say that I had a friend we grew up together with the same dream and, you know, influenced by my father. That's a great story. It is. And Jeremy openly says it, that it came from yeah. hanging around my dad and, and what we were doing. It must have been so much fun to have sort of a partner in crime in architecture to sort of do those things that, you know, other kids probably weren't interested in doing. It was. It was a lot of fun. And, you know, we were very, we were always building from tree houses to if there was a pile of sand outside the house during construction, we were carving tra tracks and raceways in it for golf balls. Whatever we could make and do yeah. as a kid, we were doing then into our teenage years. We evolved into more art endeavors as well. We remodeled our bicycles, made them into chopper. Whatever we could do to, to build, <laughs> we scrapped together and we and I and I still love tinkering and doing stuff today. It's in the blood. So Yeah. And you're still friends with Jeremy? We're still very good friends. That's great. Even though we live a few thousand miles apart, we see each other often and, sure. and it's a natural fit. So, yeah. And then along the way, I've, I had a few other mentors. When I, I came to LA and I went to USC, actually, it's kind of a fun story. I don't know what it has to do with running a practice, but my father left the country ahead of the family, like three months ahead and just drove over to USC, met Maxine McCarty, who was head of admissions in the architecture school or whatever, and gave her all my stuff and signed me up. So I was going to USC. These days with the kids, they're doing college tours and this and that. Right. And I was just said, you're going to USC. And that was it. So I went to USC. I'm in the middle of that right now with my daughter. I have two sons who've graduated. And I, my daughter is in the middle of that college tour experience. So it would be nice to be able to just, you know, here's where you're going. <laughs> Here's what you're going to do. It's going to work. That's it. And, you know, as a new immigrant, you know, you were just, we accept the challenge. And I went and I did well there. And from USC, I went there. I did make a choice to go to, to grad school and went to Columbia, New York, and studied there, lived and worked in New York for about three and a half years. My first job right out of Columbia was working for Philip Johnson. You know, right out, I was redlining, redlining elevations of a big project in Boston and the lobby. And that's all I did for one year. So, you know, wow. I kind of like to compare the practice back then and to how what happens today when young people come out of school and into practices and they the kind of the expectations are so much more. But there I was just sucking it in, absorbing in an office, 
listening to everybody around me and learning from them. But all I was doing was the elevations on this one building for a year. Yeah. But we're a very different world now, the architecture business. We can do so much more with so much little, you know, computerization, all the other stuff. Right. Where it was a very, very slow process, it's now a slightly quicker process. It's still a slow process getting any building done. So that's how I grew up on architecture. And after that, I left. One of my professors at Columbia was Bill Pedersen from Con Pedersen Fox. Yeah. And my other good friend from school, um, Sonia Chow and I, Sonia is more academic. We approached Bill Pedersen and said, hey, you guys are going to be celebrating your 10th anniversary in a year's time. We would like to do a book on your work, a monograph. And they said, sure. And they gave us all the collateral. We went to Rizzoli International and Rizzoli agreed to publish it. Wow. So the Rizzoli KPF monograph, the first one was your work? Yes. I had that book. It was one of oh, my favorite did? books. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> KPF is a firm that I had followed, you know, yeah. through architecture school and met Gene as he came to our school to lecture yes. and really inspired me. And I told that story in other episodes, but that book was one of the reasons why I was so enamored by that firm. So thank you. Oh, well, you're welcome. And it was a fantastic year of our lives. You know, we were young. I was like a year out of school. And there we had full access to all the partners in this big firm. We could. What inspired you to pitch that idea? Was that some an idea that somebody else gave to you, or was it just no? Just Sonia, who was more academic inclined, and I don't know. We were happy in our jobs anyway. I was very happy. At in fact, Johnson was very upset when I left. You know, I was doing well there, and sure. But we were young and eager to explore, and yeah. it seemed like a viable idea. And books were very much the thing back then. Yeah, And so spending a year there with full access to all the partners, asking them any questions. I was in Gene Con's office chatting away and yeah, and Bill Pedersen, of course. And I learned so much about running a firm, yeah, about designing a building. About, what a great experience. I always wanted to have my own firm. I knew that from the day I started architecture school. So this was just about, you know, gaining as much experience as I could before starting my own firm. Yeah. And that was a wonderful year, a wonderful experience. And they paid for us to fly to Cincinnati and this place and Chicago to see 333 Wacker Drive. Yeah. And as young kids, really, we were, it was awesome. And the book got published. And as you know, you saw it and I, and yeah. And then I, I left after that was finished. I came back to LA and got a job here at a firm called Welton Becker to Welton Becker was a very famous LA architect, mid-century, doing a lot of stuff. And the firm was very tired and stodgy. They got absorbed by Ellaby. And during that time, I got hired by one of my parents' friends to design their house, a big house. And I did it for almost no fee, but I wanted to get something built and I did. But during design, it led to another house for another friend of that friend and so I've always been an entrepreneur, and I believe it's essential for running your own practice. But the fees were so low on those two projects that I could not afford to give up my day job. So I kept my day job, but there were not enough hours in the day to actually draw those projects. So I hired somebody who worked for me from my dining room table while I went to work during <laughs> the day. 
That's a true entrepreneur right there. <laughs> and I would come home at 5.36 and we would have our meetings and plan for yeah. the next day. And that went fine. And then when those two houses went into construction, it was just not ethically correct to be yeah. fielding phone calls from contractors and doing stuff like that. And so I quit and I hung my, my own shingle. I was 26 years old and started my firm. And then, you know, I always say I took the slow approach to building a practice. Although somebody joked, well, you were 26, that's not slow, that's fast. But really, when you're 26 years old, building a practice, you're just cobbling it together from one small commission to another, yeah. trying to get enough fees to make it happen. And you don't really, at 26, you don't really know what you're doing in terms of the business, right? We're not trained as business owners. And so you're really just trying to figure it all out. Exactly right. But that led, you know, after a few years, it led to more very nice residential, single family residential projects. And those then led to, well, you know, can you design my church or can you design my office? And in 2003, I got thrown into the hat for a church commission, the First Presbyterian Church of Encino, and from one of my residential clients, who was a real strong architecture advocate, actually. and. I won the commission, and that was an awesome project. In fact, I won an AIA National Honor Award for it, and that sort of helped boost the early part of the career. And and then, you know, I got a call from a rabbi who saw the church published in the LA Times, and that led to a synagogue project. And so the firm started growing, and now 35, six, seven years later, we're about 35 people, a multidisciplinary practice. We like to say we don't specialize in any one product type, but we specialize in design. But we do have some specialties. There's no doubt about it. We don't do every project type around. We still do a small amount of high-end residential work, single-family residential work. And another big focus of our firm is retail. The platform here in Culver City in LA is another one of, is an example of that kind of project. And, and we do a bunch of retail. We do a lot of medical work. And it's good work. It's complicated. It's high design. We do the ecclesiastical work. So we're a lot of office work, office buildings. And part of running a multidisciplinary practice is that it's good when one sector turns down, like now. You know, office interiors and office buildings are dead. You know, the yeah. the world is trying to sort out what the office actually means. You know, or people coming back, they're not coming back, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that sector's dead, but our medical side is growing and booming. So, and the ecclesiastic is doing well. So it does help to have a balanced a portfolio of work or, or specialty that is somewhat diverse. And that's been the trick because we've weathered several recessions and downturns over the years. And in 2008, we were very heavy in single fam, high in single family residential. And that carried us through because those clients had a lot of money. They were building regardless of recession. In fact, they were building cheaper because of the recession. Right. And so that's the nature of our practice today. We love design and born out of our single family residential clients. It's very client service intensive, especially with a high end client who's very demanding. We like to say to all our clients now, we're here to hold your hands as much as you want them held. And we do. And that is sort of a model of our business. Yes, we do a lot of commercial clients with big corporate clients like Microsoft. 
but we're holding the hands. We're walking through that process. We're actively communicating with all the people on those teams. And that came out of how we serviced our residential clients. And, and we believe that's a strong asset today in doing what we do. With such a diverse firm doing so many different types of work, how do you attract the level of, because you have a very high-end design firm, right? It's very specific in the type of design that you do, right? You're not going to do any type of project and you're not going to do the project with a low budget, right? It's very clear that you do high-end design. How do you find your clients with such a diverse portfolio? You know, building strong relationships with clients is key to everything. So a lot of our business is repeat business. But how do you get that new client is always the question. So in the beginning, it was being very nimble, very scrappy. We did take on jobs that I will not mention. And you got to pay the bills. You got to pay right. yeah. this. And we're honing it. I was getting my 10,000 hours in. You got to hone your craft. It doesn't just happen. And, you know, I try to explain this as well to a lot of younger architects that come in. You know, there's... No client is going to trust you with their money, trust you with their project, unless you've demonstrated that you have real experience. And so you've got to put in the dues, pay the dues to get it. And we did that. And so referrals, referrals from one client to another, the repeat business with existing clients, really honing that is important. And now we're getting invited. I'm not being sort of glib about it, but we do get invited to compete. Everything is a competition when you're, unfortunately, unless it's single family residential where, right. you know, so we get invited, submit an RFP, RFQ, go interview, demonstrate your abilities. So that's really how we're getting the work and continue to do that. Well, let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. Accurate data is crucial especially in today's business environment. Outdated and inaccurate data leads to turnarounds, delays, and rising costs. With supply chain and staffing issues, these costs and delays can multiply. That's why a resource like RCAT.com is so important. RCAT works with manufacturers to keep their data up to date and accurate and offers it to you easily accessible and free. Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find what you need fast and download it right there on their site without needing to pay for anything. It's free. You don't even have to register. So go try RCAT.com today. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Unlock your full potential as an architect business owner at Entree Architect Network. Since 2013, Entree Architect has been the premier membership community designed exclusively for small firm entrepreneur architects like you. Join a vibrant community of like-minded professionals and gain access to a wealth of resources, mentorship, and support. From comprehensive courses to expert guidance, Entree Architect Network equips you with the necessary tools to thrive in your career. Master business strategies, enhance your marketing techniques, and excel in project management, all while fulfilling your continuing education requirements along the way. 
Break free from the isolation and connect with a supportive network that understands the unique challenges that you face as an architect business owner. Whether you're a startup architect or a seasoned professional looking to make a difference, join us and we will help you elevate your career, boost your confidence, and unlock opportunities for your architecture firm. When our community of entrepreneur architects is linked and leveraged as one, there's no limit to the impact that we can have on the world. Visit EntreeArchitect.com today and become part of our thriving network. Unleash the full potential of your architecture business. Join Entree Architect Network today, the premier global business organization for small firm architects. Learn more at EntreeArchitect.com. I think with design-intensive firms that are successful, there's a lot to be said for the skill of design, right? That you've built a brand of high design, right? And people come to you for high design and every architect wants to have a design intensive firm, but honestly, not every architect should have a design intensive firm, right? We're not all, you know, highly skilled in high end design. And so that's a very important piece of your brand is that they know that when they come to you, that they're going to get a very unique, highly designed piece of architecture. And there are others who try to do that too and can't understand why they can't succeed by building a brand around design. It's most likely because they don't have the skill at that level to do that. 100% correct. You know, there's there's a big difference between a good design firm like ours and the star architects, okay? We're, you know, like Frank Gehry and, yeah. and et cetera, or Zaha did or whatever, you know. We, you know, we're not star architects, but we have a very good reputation. And a part of our brand is delivering a really good product with high service, okay, to the client. So, yeah. and that's done well for us. You know, we're, we really help our clients at key moments of change in their, in whatever they're doing. You know, if they're, if they're a corporation and they need a new office, a new headquarters, a new, or they're a synagogue or a church that wants you. These are key moments of change, and we shepherd them through that. And and then we're very deliberate in our design process, as you could say every architect is, but not every architect is. There's, there's right. no question about it. And so we are very good listeners. Yeah, we have a bit of an ego. Yeah, we have our our own agenda that we want to try and ensure that it comes across. And yes, we do have a good idea what we think is right for a project and what would be wrong. And But we're good listeners. We hear our clients. We hear what they want. We get their feedback. And a very good client is good for a project, makes a better project. There's no yeah, question about it. So, sure. so we want to glean whatever we can. And so that's our approach to how we, we do projects. We're also quite research-oriented. We get a project on Wilshire Boulevard, okay, one of the key boulevards in LA. So we did an amazing study on the evolution of buildings on Wilshire Boulevard. And that's about a 15-mile long boulevard from the ocean to downtown. Okay. And our clients loved that. They saw how their building fit in to the development of that boulevard. So research is important. We do do a lot of research on whatever it is. It's not just the standard context that any architect might look at you know where's the sun shining from and the wind and the and is there a big building there or an ugly neighbor no we try and put it in perspective of the city of where it is and what it's doing or if it's a 
relatively new project type for us, we will really understand what it is about that business. You know, how does it tick? And part of that is working closely with a client. Part of that is doing our own research. So that research is important. We do have a little tab on our website we call AARI, Abramson Arctic's Research Initiative. And not every project that has made it to the website, but we try and foster that as well. So it's a taking a comprehensive approach to the client and the client's project that moves us in a positive direction with them. You had said earlier that a big piece of the key ingredient to your success is the relationships you have with your clients. How much does that research that you're doing help build that relationship and the trust that they will allow you to take some of the design cues and some of the moves that you want to make that they may not otherwise feel comfortable allowing you to do, but because you've built that relationship and have done that extensive research, allow you to do that. It really helps. It helps winning projects, but it helps doing a project too. Yeah. You know, uh, when I was a young architect, I, my first project, house project that I got out of LA was in Telluride, Colorado. Okay. And I've been referred to this client. They didn't know me. And somebody, I don't know who at the time said, you know, another architect mentor probably, Trevor, you got to know more about Telluride than the client knows about Telluride. Okay. So I went in there and I just, studied it for like two weeks before they came in. And this is honestly early internet days, but I did whatever I can. I knew where their site was. I knew where the winds were coming, this, that, the other, the history of Telluride, everything about it. And I could talk more Telluride than they could talk. And, and I won the job, you know, so that plus my portfolio of other projects, okay, to show some ability to do them. So it is very, very important. And we do that. So I think any architect should be embracing that. You know, we're not a commodity architect, you know, cranking out 25 Burger Kings or whatever. So that does bode well, and we do that, yeah. Having done that research for the book at KPF, the monograph, having spent that year within that firm and being having that access to the partners at that firm, how much of what you learned during that year can you sort of directly relate to the things that you do today at Abramson? I learned a lot from them. One, you know, one of KPF's early architecture practice models was to combine design teams with construction document teams. They were one of the early firms to do that. The old architecture model was you had the design studio and then it Moved down a floor, up a floor to the guys who would detail out the building and work with the engineers. They merged that into one, one practice. So you built a team for each separate project. And I modeled my practice on that. So totally, that was one of the early things to do. Also, just the tenacity in pushing a design agenda forward. You know, yeah. it's very easy to sort of yield to a client and. You know, it's different if you're Frank Gehry because, you know, the client is yielding to Frank Gehry, okay, right. who I love and I think has done great things for our practice and the art of architecture. But, you know, we have to still try and make our own path despite the client and with the client, okay? So, and we do, 
So learning, KPF was was doing that well. They were pushing that as well. You know, every one of their projects from an early stage of their life was, again, a high design project, not just another high-rise building. How can we change what we're doing? How can we think this through? And obviously, it's bode well to them. They're one of the greatest firms, you know, doing strong work. It's harder to keep doing as strong work as the firm keeps growing and growing and growing, you know. Right. And we even see it now, you know, with 35 people, we have about 50 projects in the office at any one time. And you've got to keep the pulse on the design, the pulse on the product we're putting out and the pulse on the service. So those are all important aspects to running a successful firm, no matter what size you are, quite frankly. Yeah. What does the future of Abramson Architects look like? Do you have plans for succession? What are your thoughts in the next, you know, five to 10 years? Absolutely, I do. I'm 62 years old. I'm young at heart. Well, you have plenty of time. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just wondering, you know, plenty of time. But I've been thinking about, I've been planning for this since yeah. for, for the last five years, and I know a few practices that the partners are they're in the mid 60s to getting to 70. They wake up and they say, you know, I don't want to do this at this pace. Um, and they look around in their office and there's no middle management that can yeah. succeed them. There's nobody there to take it over. So I've been working very, very deliberately to do that. I never wanted to be a mom and pop and, you know, pop leaves and that's the end of the practice. Yeah. So we've actually built it into a business now that is that can sustain itself without me or hopefully can and will. Certainly not now, but maybe by the time I'm 65, 68, 70 years old, it absolutely can. So how do you do that? Mentor, bring in younger partners. And I have I have three fantastic partners right now who are all engaged in running projects and bringing in work. You know, the key to everything is you got to bring in the job first. You know, there's a lot of skilled architects that can't get work, but you've got to bring in the job. So, and that's easier said than done. Even now with 37 years of experience with an extensive portfolio, every job is a, is a hunt, is a competition, is a strategic initiative. How do we approach it? How do we get there? So my partners are learning this. They're doing well. So we're bringing in the next tier. What we're doing is if a firm is a pyramid and the founder is sitting at the top, you can never transition if you're just still sitting at the top. You've got to push responsibility down and you've got to empower the push the bottom up. And you know, we get young people coming in and doing great. And you can't just ignore them and just say, okay, they're doing their job. You know, you never know which one of those young people has the spark to actually rise in a firm and actually be the next partner or somebody. So we want to push from the bottom up and distribute responsibility from the top down. And so that's what we're actively doing. So internally, it sounds like you have a plan. Do you have thoughts externally, right? The firm's name is Abramson Architects, right? The brand is built on Trevor Abramson and his design skill. What are you doing specifically to sort of start to transition that brand as well, that it's not, you know, all about you? Yeah, so we're not Gensler, but Gensler is, is the name of right. the founder. Yeah, but, sure. but they have, you know, a thousand people doing, generally speaking, great work across many offices. So I would like to believe that the name can outlive me 
and become mean more than just me. Yeah. And it is already because my partners are strongly engaged with their clients. They're bringing in work. I'm not designing every aspect. I'm more like the studio professor walking around the studio yeah. on many projects, critiquing here, there, giving advice. Some I'm absolutely involved in a lot of the the design from inception to end. It just depends. So, but you have to be able to delegate and live with that. Yeah. That's not easy, right? Not easy. <laughs> you know. And even my younger partners are finding that they have to do that as well because there's only so many hours in their day, you know. So right. otherwise the firm just stays very small. And maybe that's not a terrible thing. You know, there's a lot of good small firms, but it all depends what the ambitions are. Our ambition is never to be another Gensler. It's not our desire, but our ambition is to be a strong design firm that can sustain itself through its product and its reputation. And maybe we're 35, maybe we're 50 people, you know, maybe we're a little bigger, but it's not about the number of people. It's about the quality of projects. This is what we say all the time. We're constantly striving to improve the quality of the projects, even though we have some great projects, you know, there's even greater projects out there, you know, that we would love to attack. You know, it's, it's that design motivation. How do we keep designing? You know, can I, would I like to design a very cool high-rise building, 100 stories? Yeah, I think it would be a great challenge. Would I love to do a museum? You know, yes. So how do we improve the quality of the projects? We're doing a lot of medical work. We have some great clients. Would I like to be doing some big life science building for a pharmaceutical company or whatever? Yes. I think those are terrific projects that that are highly, highly technical, highly involved, can be very sustainable. We value sustainability. We push that agenda. And not every project lends itself to that. So we're always looking to improve that quality of the work. It's not just, okay, we're going to be 50 people, 60 people, whatever. No, that we're not interested in that. We're interested in the project type. And as the projects grow, they need more people to make them happen. So that's what we've determined is our goal. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. As we wrap things up, I'd love to ask you the one question that I ask all my guests as a business owner, as someone who has started their firm from scratch and has built it into a successful, thriving firm. What would you say to the architects that are listening? What's one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Maybe it's one thing, but maybe it's three things. One thing is your word is everything. Integrity is everything. Your reputation is built on integrity. Your reputation is not as good as the last building you got built if your integrity is not with it. So what I mean by that is if we tell a client X, Y, or Z, we do X, Y, or Z. We're not flaky. Our word is everything. And our clients trust us because of that. They depend on us. And part of building a practice is being the trusted advisor of a client. Really, that's critical. They call us for all sorts of stuff, not just the big building. And then if we say we will have be done by March 1st, we're done by March 1st. There's no ifs, ands, or duds. So live by your word. That's, I think, the number one thing I could tell any young architect. The other is keep your eye on the design. You know, just hone your craft. Design, design, design. Try not to sacrifice, but compromise is not a terrible thing either. Okay, because 
you will never get anything done if you just refuse to compromise. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a bad design as a result. In fact, I think it can be an improved design if you actually understand that the client does have valid suggestions. So those are two things, I think, to running a building a young practice into a mature practice. If you stand by that, I think it will bode you well. Yeah, yeah, great advice. You said earlier that you have a bit of an ego and a little bit of a determination that you want to make sure that you get the designs that you want. And now we're talking about compromise. And so I'm wondering about that process, right? In order to make sure that you get the level of design and be able to fulfill the ideas, right? The concepts that you've come up with and be able to compromise. Is there a process that you go through intentionally to be able to accommodate that? There is. And I hope not all my clients are listening. Give away my trade secret. Yeah, but, but you know, sometimes clients will say, great things, really. And they know what they're doing, particularly on the uh, non-residential end, because they know their business. They know they're, what they're doing. Right. But sometimes clients will say dumb things, you know, but don't just poo-poo it. You've got to hear them out. So right. I like to tell people in my office, it's a circular process. The client's dumb idea was suggestion. You hear it. You even sketch out alternatives to do with it. But you know where you want to get to and you bring them around to your idea, but you've heard them and you've walked them through the process of getting there. So, And then if a client has a great idea, then there's no issue because you right. can just move forward on it. But it's how to get the less great ideas to improve and make the design good, you know, yeah. which you believe in your heart is the way to go. That's a very important process to hear it, right? To listen to it, to give them the time and respect to be able to follow through the process of, of developing at some level the idea that they have and then also show them alternatives and it becomes obvious which is the right solution but they are heard and they can now put it to bed if they've never been heard and it's just your one thing then they just resist that one thing because they've never actually you didn't even develop the idea that i came up with exactly and you know you've done well when the client is sort of taking credit for the idea exactly <laughs> You've done a good job. Exactly. Then it bodes well. So, yes. Thank you for that. His name is Trevor Abramson. Abramson Architects is the firm. AbramsonArchitects.com is the website. We'll have a link to that on the show notes. Trevor, thank you for coming by here and sharing your story, sharing your knowledge. I appreciate you, the fantastic design work. I appreciate you for coming by and sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast. Thanks, Mark. It's been a pleasure. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a five-star rating, write a quick review, and share a link to this episode with a friend because that is how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands more architects just like you. By sharing a rating, write a review, share a link to this episode with a friend. I appreciate you for that. Thank you to all our sponsors for this episode, RCAT and Entree Architect Network. Links to sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode and every episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. You can now earn continuing education credits for listening to this podcast. Select episodes of Entree Architect Podcast 
are approved for AIA continuing education credit. Learn more about our new Gable Members program at gablemedia.com slash members. That's G-A-B-L media.com slash members. Thank you for listening to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage. Love, learn, and go share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. (laughs) So for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together.
Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.